And we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and an eye clear. What we need is here. Excerpt from The Wild Geese by Wendell Berry. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. And welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. John Johnson here with Larissa. What is your last name these days, Larissa? I know you're about to get married. Question is, will you be married by the time this airs? <laughs> um. Hopefully, because I'm not getting married until September. So hopefully this airs before September. At the at the pace at which we pump these things out, we just never know. So anyway, great to be with you in our very, excuse me, very special. <laughs> I got a cough. Sorry. Very special guest, Brian Fink. Hello, Brian. Hi there. So good to meet you. When I saw your your name and your little bio pop up on the schedule, yeah. I said, I have so many questions for this guy. So, well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I have all the answers. And if not, uh, I will definitely make them up as I go along and sound convincing. That's, that's how I do it. But yeah. Yeah, I don't always sound convincing. So uh, <laughs> so you, you, your your Twitter bio identifies you as husband, dad, teacher, homesteader with the grip strength of a Greek god. That's right. So that's let's right. start. Let's start with the grip strength. You just like fist in the, the rice buckets or what's your what's your story there? Um. I hand milk goats. Oh. And so we have dairy goats uh, on our farm and um, hand milking them daily, twice daily will give you the kind of grip strength, you know, that, that Dwight tries to get, you know, with that little machine, uh, you know, at his, at his desk in the office, but this is real. And, and uh, you know, they're, they're living animals and, uh, and I milk them by hand. And so it's, you know, of course it's, mostly just a joke, but enough to get a little bit of attention to people thinking, why on earth would he write that? And what does it mean? And so clearly I've had a little success, at least John with you. So conversation starter. That's right. That's right. Uh, So my wife and I, and my, we we have five kids also seven and under as of now. Yeah. Yep. My oldest, our oldest uh, daughter uh, just turned seven in, in, in March and and number five. five Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And where, where are you located? Don't give your, uh, your street address, obviously, but what's your general neck of the woods? Uh, we live in Michigan in central Michigan. Okay. Yeah. And you, you decided at some point in your lives to start a farm or, or were you, were you sort of born and bred farmers? Well, that's a great question. No, I, I was not at all. My, my dad uh, did a career in the air force and we lived on base until I was in third grade. And then we moved off base to a kind of rural area, but it was not a farming area by any stretch. There was a pig farm down the road, but I mean, all we ever had growing up animal wise were pet dogs. And the only sort of, you know, garden thing we did uh, until uh, I came back to Michigan after uh, discerning out of uh, the seminary, discerning a call to marriage. And I got engaged to my uh, current wife, what current wife, my only wife, uh, but we were looking for a place <laughs> to live. I'm sorry. It was a strange way. I wanted to word it the right way, but oh, yeah. obviously I, I was, I was unsuccessful yes. there. Yeah. 
And my grandmother, my, my dad's mom, uh, had been recently widowed, maybe two or three years prior to that. And I was helping her out on the farm, uh, you know, mowing and moving hay and, and things like that. And right before my wife and I got married, I, I well, maybe this was maybe it might have been even. Well, I, I think I floated the idea before my wife and I got married. I said, you know, Graham, why, why don't I just come and live out here on the farm? with my wife and you can build a little granny house on the north part of the property and then I'll just live out here and I'll help you with the animals and and uh you know just be here and she said you know Brian I'm I'm 80 years old I'm not building a house at 80 well 2 weeks later she had plans drawn up she talked to my dad about it they had everything was sort of in place and then within oh, 4 or 5 months she had a little not a little house. It's it's a much nicer house than the house that we live in. Although we love our house, it's a 150 year old farmhouse and wow. has all the charm and all of the perilous dangers that go with that. But uh, yeah, within a few months, she had a house built, and then my wife and I moved in. I want to say Thanksgiving, uh, around Thanksgiving time, and that was kind of the start of it. So she had a few goats at the time. When I was growing up and we went out to visit, she, she and my grandfather kept horses, pigs, chickens, sheep. Uh, I think they, they actually raised a, um, uh, a rescue Holstein one year. Not that I recall that, but they had a, you know, a pretty large, small-scale farm, as oxymoronic as that sounds. So when my wife and I moved out there, I said, oh, I'll help out a little bit. You know, I'll move hay, but I'm not. I'm not milking goats, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting up at five 30 in the morning to, to go out in the freezing cold in the middle of February and milk goats. But of course, one morning I, I remember waking up and looking out the bedroom window and my grandmother trudging out in the dead of winter out to the barn. And I said, I can't, I can't make my grandmother go out there by herself. So I started going out to help with chores. Long story short, here we are eight years, eight years. Yeah, we'll be our eighth anniversary this, this summer. If you uh, knew how years. hard the farm life was, would you have, would you have done it at the time? We're, we're thinking about, well, we're not thinking about, we're in the process of moving out to a little 10 acre farmstead. And uh, I'm finding already that for instance, you know, we're renovating the house, but we decided, I decided against my wife's better judgment sure. to uh, throw some pigs in there. Cause they're just little pigs and little mango eats hogs. They're very cute. And yeah. you know, we could raise them and have some bacon. And uh, I tell you, if we had to calculate out the actual cost of those, of that bacon that we now have in our freezer and the actual effort and the uh, amount of times that those hogs just get out of their enclosure yeah. uh, is a lot harder than you imagine it being at the onset. No, that's what you're saying is absolutely true. And were it not for the infrastructure of the farm already being in place at my grandparents' house, they already had two barns. They have a, a goat, what we call our goat barn and a horse barn, even though we don't have horses in there anymore. There was already a chicken coop. There was already a chicken run. There was already a pig pen and a pig yeah. run. All of those things were already in place. All the infrastructure was in place. All of the ways that all of the animals had broken out in the past, they had figured out. And so for us, 
you know, the few, there, there were already a few goats there. And then we added a few chickens. We had the chicken coop. Let's get a few chickens. And then the next spring I said, well, well, let's get a couple of pigs, you know, and see, but all of it was already there. And I had the tremendous benefit. I mean, it's the incalculable benefit of having my grandmother living next door for five years before she passed away every single morning, every night coming out for chores. She had all of this collected wisdom from her time and my grandfather's time. And so she had all of these answers to all of the questions that had I not had her, I mean, I probably would have done research and investigated like most people do. You go on YouTube and see about solutions to problems, but she was just there. And yeah. had I not, had that not been the case, I, it's really hard to say whether we would have proceeded any further uh, than, than when we first arrived. Um, but now as hard as it is, I can't, I just can't imagine going back and you're right. The calculation of the cost, I, I calculated it, I think one summer with pigs and it, I, I paid myself a dollar an hour Yeah, to raise those pigs a dollar an hour. Yeah. So. And your pork chops are the cost of uh, dry aged filet. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but, but it's worth it, right? It, well, it isn't. And, and next time, uh, John, just raise two more than you than you think you'll need and sell them. Yeah, and, and you can make up your cost. And and that's our that's kind of our, with pigs. I'll say, goats. It's man. It's tough to break even. We make cheese and we have herd shares. You know, so people who will um, uh, do a herd share and get milk, but they're tough to. They're tough to make up financially. The chickens, I mean, you just can't beat farm fresh eggs and a steady supply. And they're kind of a, they're they're a no brainer. Chickens are easy. That's right. But the pigs. Pigs are a pain. They are, but they're financially the thing that keeps us hobby farming. I'll say. Got it. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. I've never had any uh, desire to do anything even semi-commercially. For me, yeah. the idea is more of like these are apocalypse pigs, and we will have bacon when nobody no. else does. That's right. Uh, you got and, something to trade. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so we got our eye on some. Uh, what are they called? The hair sheep, Catans or something. Okay. Uh, and then uh, we want a Jersey cow. Just get that milk, you know. Yeah. Maybe two. That's a lot of milk. Yeah. That that's a lot of milk. It is. I know. Yeah. I know. That's the other thing. I don't know what I'm getting into. Like we got to be out there milking that cow every day if we do that. So yes, and that's a huge raise yeah, my ahead. girls up to be able to do that in my yeah. stead. That's a big. That's a big commitment with with dairy goats as well. Yeah. If you don't milk them, they stop giving milk. Um, yeah. And so you're kind of committed to that with with the uh, with milking animals for sure. For All right. Sure. So you, your your goal in life is to be an integrated human. Uh, I want you to explain <laughs> what that means and how, as far as education goes, does raising a family and living uh, extremely rurally help help uh, with the entire ethos of education, child rearing, husbandry, both uh, in the animal and uh, matrimonial sense? Um, well, that's a simple question. I think that I'll just be able to answer it, you know, in a, in a couple of sentences, no problem. Um, goodness gracious, John, why don't you just throw the whole, the whole book at me? You have an hour. 
hour, Brian. Go ahead. Well, thank you. Go ahead. Right. Well, yeah, but I, you know, you want people Called to leave the softball the, in the biz. You want people to leave the podcast on. You know, you want them to continue listening. That's the. That's, that's the why we open with uh, grip strength and goat milking. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, well, to, I mean, to live an integrated life in in the kind of etymological sense is to have everything in my life and the life of my family as best as we can fit together. And of course it sounds sort of vague, but, but it's, it's in opposition to a kind of compartmentalization of life that we see all around us. Mm-hmm. where people live their work life, they live their home life, their social life, their friendship life, perhaps their faith life, uh, extracurriculars for kids. And it's sort of moving from one busy activity to the next without any, mm, without any real clear understanding or connection between those things. You just kind of wake up and you kind of do the thing and then when that first thing is done, you kind of do the next thing. And it seems like many people just live their whole lives like that, not necessarily even knowing why they're doing the things they're doing. I'm, in fact, I was just talking to my wife about this the other day, about child rearing and about how, how it's possible to raise children or have a family without ever thinking about why do I have kids? What are kids for? And, you know, in the broader sense, what are human beings for? And so when you start to think about everything in life framed in that question and you answer the question, and for us, for, for, for me and my house, we serve the Lord and our goal is heaven and our, our aim on earth is to, to become saints. And so when you frame your life that way, you start to think about all of the things that you do and why you do them. And the more ordered they are and ordered toward that end, I think the more integrated life becomes. It becomes easier to say yes to the things that you know you should, you should say yes to and no to the things that, that don't fit into that, um, into that framework, you know, um, so it's not just it's not just a jumble of activity and then you go to bed and and, and wake up the next day and do it all over again, right? I'm yeah. sorry, Larissa, you're saying? Yeah, I think you're touching on it. But you've also mentioned you tweet a lot about, you know, making peace and leisure in your life. And so right. how does this order that you're creating create because your life on the outskirts, it doesn't sound, I mean, your day is probably up at 5 30. You're a teacher, you have five kids. I can't imagine there's a lot of peace in your life but how does this type of order bring peace real peace well i i think it's precisely in that you know uh, one of my favorite quotations that i do tweet a lot is from saint augustine who says peace is found in the tranquility of order and i love the idea of ordinary things and most people many people are terrified of being ordinary or living an ordinary life, but it depends on how you define the term. And, and for me, when I think about it, I think about an ordinary life being an ordered life. And are there a lot of things that you give up living a kind of ordinary life? 
Yeah, I suppose so. But all of life is about choosing between one thing and another, and hopefully choosing between competing goods. And so when there isn't, when there isn't a sense of order in my own life, internally, spiritually, in a life of prayer, things like that, I become mean and cranky and impatient. And, and my children often bear the brunt of that. Uh, and when our family doesn't have a kind of routine, meal time, prayer time, quiet time, play time, it all kind of gets jumbled up and nobody knows what's going on. And it becomes a point of, it becomes a point of disorder for, for us. And we're not very good at it. And of course, you know, when you have kids and they're tiny and young and they don't quite understand, they're, they're spontaneous and their sense of, oh, this is going to help me live a peaceful interior life, this sitting quietly and reading books after dinner, I can understand why mother and father have asked us to do this. No, no, no. Most of it is just hurting, right? Corralling kids. Uh, but to, to, to try, to try to live that way um, in a predictable way, and again, in an ordinary way, pushing back against the tide of the culture that embraces a, a quote unquote sense of freedom. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, no one can hold me back. No one can tell me what to do. I'm unrestricted. That's just chaos. Like that's, that's the chaos before God spoke into it, mm. right? Before the, before God breathed uh, and, and brought form from chaos. The, the integrated life you'd say is, the, the ordered life and everything is ordered to something higher. And at the same time, it's in the, in the general sense, a sacramental life. That is everything points to something else in a way that the whole and each of the parts in the whole are integrated That's it. with one another. That's it. Um, how important is well, I don't know how to ask this question. Let me, let me just, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make a statement and you can sort of reflect on it. <clears throat> what I've noticed in my, in my family life, in my marriage, is that the closer my wife and I are, the more ordered my children are. And you can always tell when the inverse is, is happening. If there's child chaos, there's probably a distance between husband and wife. And at the same time, if the world is falling apart around us and husband and wife are close, things seem to find order. And how important in your, in your family life, without getting too personal, is that sort of priority of marriage over child rearing? Yeah. No, that's it, John. You're, you're, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And, <clears throat> and the marriage, you know, it, depending on how people think about it and talk about it and the, the goods of marriage and the ends of marriage, a child rearing is, is one of the, the, the ends of marriage. Um, but my wife is more important to me than my children are. That's right. And if, 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 if you had a wife case, and a kid that fell off a life raft and you could save one of them, there's a certain duty that you would have to save your wife. Yeah. And if you and your wife fell, this is an interesting, you know, life raft, uh, moral morality is always yeah. interesting to discuss, but if you, <laughs> if you fell off the life raft with a kid 
I guess there's there's a chance you could sort of command your wife to save your kid instead of you. And I think any good father would do that. That's right. Well, and uh, Esalen, yeah, Esalen, I'm reading yeah. a book, but his new one called No Apologies. I just, I just cracked into that. It's, it's, he, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he says it's the exact thing. And he's, he's talking in a chapter about hierarchies, uh, which, which the, which, which modern culture loathes, but he basically says uh, women and children are indispensable. Men are not, That's but right. he says it in a particular way that, that, it makes complete sense that in that scenario, of course, you're going to push your kid up back into that life raft and you're going to tell your wife and kid that you love them and you're going to try and fight the tide and, and stay alive. But but the the natural order of men, claims Esalen and many others before him, is ordered toward the protection of women and children and not necessarily or fundamentally or even primarily to the protection of himself. And so when that is thrown out of order and unnaturally either in men behaving in a particular role or particular way or women vice, and we we don't have to get deep into those weeds, but it's really, really bad for men when their primary aim is directed toward themselves. It's really bad. Lots of bad things happen when men are focused primarily and exclusively or exclusively on themselves. And ironically, it's, it's entirely unmanly. Uh, That's right. The men, the men who are completely focused on themselves, you know, the real narcissists are, uh, you know, strikingly effeminate and boyish. That's it. That's right. That's right. And so, uh, in circling back to your your question or to your statement of the sense in which there's unity between myself and my wife brings a kind of peace to our family exactly the way that you said it and thankfully my wife and I I mean she's not here to to refute this and so she won't be able to even if she does it won't be recorded so we won't have anyone to verify it but I'm going to say it definitively right here my wife and I don't get into it a lot yeah we're both kind of introverted we're both kind of quiet and introspective in a, in a manner of speaking. And we disagree most about whether we should have a drying rack in our sink. It's, it's our biggest fight, whether we have a drying rack. And we don't have to talk about that in great detail. I don't want to get angry about it. But we don't get into it a lot. Normally, our distance comes as a result of busyness. Uh, long days, you know, being at school all day, which is a short day compared to most of of people who work, but then there's work on the farm, you know, especially around this time of year uh, and a little bit earlier in the, in the spring. And so it can be a busy, busy day and not having that time with her can be an occasion of a sense of distance. And yeah, the kids pick up on that right away, right away. We need to meet in person. You're, okay. You're, you you're live in, in California, right? I do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you ever get out here? Well, we'll talk about it offline. Yeah, I'll tell you right. that. Let's, let's, get, let's get in person. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I feel like we're living parallel lives. You all, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm looking at your notes here. You also went, you you discern in the seminary. Yeah. Um, I did a little time in Norcha myself and they okay. kind of laughed, laughed me out of there and said, you're, <laughs> you're not going to be a monk, John. Yeah. Uh, I said, yeah, well, thanks. And it was like, I, it was so liberating to hear that because I wanted, I wanted the best thing, you know, I wanted the highest thing. 
That's right. And I had to learn what the highest thing for me was. Just talk briefly about your yeah. uh, discernment path. Yeah. Well, um, I had a reversion back to my Catholic faith in college. Grew up Catholic, uh, went to Sunday Mass, kind of typical cradle Catholic. My dad converted 20 or so years later. He was not Catholic originally, but my mom was. She was one of eight, all raised Catholic. And, and so we did the Sunday Catholic thing, but that was about it. And so I left for college thinking, yeah, I, I, I need to still go to Mass. So I'm glad that that was a part of things. But but beyond that, no real sense of personal faith, personal relationship with the Lord, no life of prayer to speak of. I, you know, I would go to confession once in a while. Uh, but then I went on a retreat and it was just a really powerful experience. And for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by priests. And first time in my life, I met seminarians. I didn't even know what a seminarian was as a kid. Uh, I, I don't even know if I knew where priests came from. I thought they just sort of showed up and they were there yep. and they came with the church. And when you showed up at the church, well, there was a priest who came with it, you know? And so that was a brand new experience for me, a great experience when I was a student at the University of Illinois. I think there were five or six full-time priests there. Hmm. And there were always seminarians who were spending time in the summers or uh, visiting during their breaks. And so it was a whole new world that opened up this possibility that Normal young men, uh, like me, I think I was a normal, normal-ish young man, uh, were interested in all sorts of things, but they subjugated all of those things to the desire to do God's will. And so that idea of, of being a priest was planted, I think, then in a, in a powerful way. And... Uh, and I, I continued to pursue my studies and graduated uh, and I taught for a year before I was in the, I was actually in the, the Air Force National Guard and our unit was deployed to the Middle East uh, for a while. And upon returning, I had some time free uh, before the next school year started. And so I actually traveled to, to South America for a few months, but, but the, and I don't want to skip over that in full because I had a, I had an amazing experience living there with a religious community of sisters and lay families who were uh, committed to serving the poor in the central part of Argentina. And I, at, at one point there, a couple of months in, I, I actually had a chance to meet with the bishop and I said, could I, could I become a priest here? Is that possible? What do I, I didn't know anything about the discernment, or excuse me, the uh, the priestly preparation process. I didn't know how long seminary took. I didn't really know that you had to study for for a diocese. And he said, "No, you need to go back to the United States. And if you want to become a priest, and God calls you to be a priest, you'll be a priest in the United States, and then you can you can come back." And I said, "Okay." Uh, and for the next few years, I worked in campus ministry in Illinois at Illinois State University. And the, the idea was always there, but, but I kind of, well, I was, I was interested in dating and I was interested in, in what I had imagined would have been my vocation from the start. But, but I ended up meeting uh, two guys who were really seriously considering discerning the priesthood. And it was really my friendship with them. And I was meeting with spiritual director and things like that. And I, I kind of at a point, I came to this decision point of, look, I cannot discern this thing outside the seminary. 
I just can't do it. Yeah. I can't be sort of pursuing a dating relationship and pursuing this thing. I can't do it. And uh, so uh, I applied to the seminary and was accepted and studied um, for five years, four years uh, for the Diocese of Peoria. And then I transferred to Lansing because my sister and her husband started having children. My grandfather, as I'd mentioned earlier, he got very sick and I just felt this sense of wanting to be nearer to them. And so I transferred from Peoria to Lansing. But after that fifth year, it was after one year at Lansing, uh, I went on a 30-day silent retreat in South Dakota. And it became really clear during that retreat, it was an Ignatian retreat, that I was not called to be a priest. Hmm. And it was very sad, but very freeing, as you you mentioned, John. You have clarity about what you're supposed to do. And... And after that, having having had now a clear sense that I was not called to be a priest, I began to pursue the vocation of marriage and uh, met my wife, and we were married about a year after that, after I left the seminary. That's how so it works. That's how it works. And and praise be to God. And, you know, people are like, oh, this is so scandalous. You just left the seminary and you already met a girl and you're going to get married. I'm like, that's what's supposed to happen. If you're not supposed to be a priest, you're not supposed to hang out and think, why wasn't I supposed to be a priest for five years? And until it's, it's not like you're breaking up with a girl and then you're getting married to another girl. Now that would be a bit scandalous. It could right. be a bit scandalous. Yeah. Or if the girl pulled you out of seminary, that's a bit scandalous, but right. you right. made a free decision in both that's directions. Right. And, that's right. Yeah. And that's, that's the way it's, mm-hmm. it's sometimes we're looking for answers from God, but he's really just looking for the answer from us. And, yeah. and the only, the, what's lacking in discernment, wherever there's a lack of clarity, there's a simple lack of yes on the part of the discerner. God wants the yes before yeah. he's going to tell you the details. That's right. Sometimes. That's right. You have to jump. Yeah. You have to jump first. I'm curious. Did you ever bump into the community of St. John when you were in Peoria? I did. I did. Yeah. I spent, um, I did a couple of retreats there, just personal retreats. And I, I went, yeah, over several times. I lived there from um, for about 10 years, 10 years, man. That's a long time to live. Yeah. And I would go two or three times a year. I would go either for Vespers or they had, you know, times of, of adoration, uh, evening Vespers and adoration and things like that. And I made a, some personal retreats there as well. Yeah. 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 We were married by a community of St. John priest and oh, really? a beautiful, yeah. Father Nathan Cromley, a beautiful, Oh yes. Father, beautiful Nathan. intellectual and contemplative life that they live. And, yeah. uh, yeah. and may God, may God, help and protect that order through all of its stuff. So, right. Right. Anyway, um, what else you want to talk about? I mean, I, I, I have a million questions for you, but uh, I mean, I want to talk to you about virtue. I want to talk to you about just practical education stuff. Larissa, what, what do you, what do you want out of this guy? Time is short here. We got We got an hour with, with a great mind. uh, And I think this is just the first podcast of many. We're going to tape with Brian here, but, that's very kind. Go ahead. Yeah, let's. Um, I also wanted to talk about virtue and education, and specifically, yeah. I wanted. I know you have. You're about to have your fourth son, and you're a middle school teacher, right? So you probably yeah. experience a lot of rowdy boys. That's right. And I wanted to ask you about 
the um, the balance between allowing for boys will be boys and also guiding boys towards being men and that that balance, especially in middle school. Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish I could say I had some some tremendous insight or clarity about about the answer. Uh, the I'll tell you what, the challenge teaching middle school boys, I think is the challenge of teaching all boys in general. And, and it's that they're not, boys are not designed to sit in a classroom for eight hours a day. I don't think any human is, but boys in particular, adult men, adult women, adults in general. All right. If we need to sit and do our thing and be, be productive in an office with a cubicle and take some breaks, you know, every once in a while, we can do it as a matter of necessity. But to ask, I mean, for me to ask my four-year-old son to sit down for more than 20 minutes is like torture. And for me to ask 12 or 13-year-old boys to sit for a, you know, our our school schedule is, is in blocks in the middle school. And so I have them for about 90 minutes a day. And we take a little break in the middle uh, of that 90 minutes. But to ask them to sit for much longer than that and to repeat that all day long, it's more and more, I feel like they're not ordered toward that naturally. And so there are a lot of things And this discussion has been had many, many times about how school is designed. Uh, well, maybe not designed, but it, it fits more naturally, many will say for young women because of their disposition and not so much for boys. And so boys get in a lot of trouble for being boys, not for misbehaving. It's, it's defined as or labeled as misbehavior, but it's just the most natural thing in the world for a boy to see what might happen if he does a thing. And my wife and I talk about that all the time because we live on a farm and we got tractors <laughs> and we so got, funny. we got pitchforks and we've got electric fencing and, and, you know, our boys, everything for them. And this I see more in my own children, not, not as much in my students, but everything for my boys is an adventure, even like putting away the clothes, you know, so we'll fold the clothes and they'll take their, they'll take their, their deliveries, we call them. All right. So someone will take the socks and whatever, and it's an adventure. So my daughter is going to grab a huge, a huge pack of socks and take them right to the basket. My sons are going to take one pair of socks and throw it toward the room where the socks should go and see how close they can get to the basket. And it's going to be totally inefficient. And they're going to weigh a big pair of socks versus a small pair of socks, or they're going to put the basket on their head and, you know, and it's all of life for them as an adventure. And so the challenge of course is, is okay. Well, what, 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 are, what about these adventures might kill them? Okay. We got to sort of pair that back. All right. I can't let my boys go out and start the tractor. Not yet. Um, I got to keep them out of the pig pen uh, because those pigs can, can be feisty and aggressive. And the bigger they get, the, the more dangerous they are. But man, a lot of busted lips and scratched knees and, you know, biffs and bonks, because I think they just approach life saying, what would happen if I do this? And that's their only thought. They're not thinking a whole lot beyond that. They're just saying, I'm, I, I want to try this. Should I do it? I should do it. Do I know what will happen? No, but I want to find out. 
And I'm going to do it because I want to find out. And so when you put these boys in a classroom and they, they can do it, they can, they can navigate it, but they're, they, they don't have the opportunity as much in a traditional classroom setting to say, I wonder what would happen if I did this. And it doesn't even have to be a physical activity. It doesn't have to be building something or make, it could just be, I wonder what happened if I said this thing to another classmate and what response I would get. Or I wonder what would happen if I presented this challenge to the teacher and how he would or she would respond. They don't have as much opportunity to do that in, in a traditional classroom setting. Now, what is the solution? I don't know. I don't know. It, it, is that there? I think there are some great hybrid models out there where maybe it's an all boys school or maybe not, but they're spending half the day inside and half the day outside, and not just outside, uh, you know, at recess running around. I mean, they're they're out in the woods, they're out building things, they're out moving things, they're exploring. Um, that to me, I, I find at least with my own kids to be the way that they learn best. Well, I mean, my, my oldest son, his favorite question is, what are you doing? It's his favorite question. And it, he, he's not interested in what I'm doing. He's not interested in me. He's interested in the thing, whatever the thing is. And he just wants to watch and be a part of it and, and participate. And um, so we try to encourage that. But, you know, that just means a lot of the tools from the shop go missing. And they try to help out, you know, feeding the animals and they give them the wrong hay. And, you know, they pour the, they pour the, the, the goat minerals in the water bucket. And, but they're just, they, they want to do and be uh, in an active way. And it's, it's hard. It's hard uh, in the classroom. It's much more freeing at home. Uh, and we homeschool our kids. I mean, our daughter's, she's just old enough now. She'll be in second grade. And then our oldest son will be in kindergarten. That's right, I think. So there's a lot more freedom there, um, but it's I gotta, hard. I got to believe there's an analogy uh, between the way we look at our sons and the way God looks at us, you know, yeah. Yeah. there, there yeah. he goes pouring the goat minerals in the water again. I tell yeah. you, well, yeah, there was a great <laughs> priest, a great priest uh, who was at the seminary, Father Brett Brannon. I think he's from, he's from Georgia and he, he used an analogy about God and us about um, a mom letting her children help make cookies and the kids want to help. They want to help make cookies, you know? So the mom's like, Oh boy. Okay, here we go. All right, let's get the ingredients. And you get the flour and you get the, the water and you get the butter and you help them. And they, they just make this huge mess all over the counter, all over the floor. They dump in the whole bag of chocolate chips and, and it's a disaster, but God wants us to help. You know, he could totally make those cookies. Instantly, yeah. he perfectly. He wants us to help, and he supplies yeah. the ingredients. That's right, and he's okay with a mess. Yes, he's okay with a mess. So uh, that there is a great analogy there, and 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 as a father, trying to be attentive to that, Dad, can I help? And I'm like, oh man, okay. I'm just I'm adding 45 minutes to what we're about to do, but but what can I say? No, you can't, son. You can't. Come here beside me and help me with this thing because why? Yeah. Because why? 
because I want to get it done efficiently so that I can do what? That's right. And this is, I wish, you know, our educational crowd would just hone in on this because this is the essence of pedagogy. Yeah. You are, you are leading a young man uh, in, 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 in a way, in your way uh, toward an end. That's right. And toward and toward this integrated life that you are attempting to live. That's right. And you have to model it, of course. And, you know, we're bad at it. We try to be good, but we're, you know, we're so uh, human beings are so fickle. And, and, but, but I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about at least having in mind the thing we should do, having in mind the end. And when you have that in mind, you can mess up completely. And you're like, oh man, you talk to your wife about, we totally blew that. Or you talk to your kid, you know, this didn't, and you apologize and you, you reconcile. But if you don't even know what the end is, man, oh man, how could you ever get it right? It's, it's just a, that's right. Everything's accidental if you get it right, you know? So there's, there's a, there's freedom in that. Even though, you know, we talk to our kids about that all the time. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to mess up. And, and you reconcile and you apologize and you ask forgiveness and you move on, you move on with your life. But man, people who don't have any sense of why do I exist? What's this all for? Man, that just is talk about stress, anxiety. You know, even if you get it right, you don't know if you got it right. Yep. So, so there's that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. Lightning round here. Uh, we got to keep it to an hour, but this is going to be one, as I said, one of several uh, conversations with Brian Fink. Thank you, John. By the way, people can find you you. on at B underscore Fink. That's right. On the Twitter. Yeah. I told Larissa in an email that she asked if I could, you could share my handle. And I said, I'm sure as a result, I will get tens of additional followers. Hey, you have more followers than the Albertus Magnus (laughs) Institute right now. So well, and your and your feed is remarkably edifying by by Twitter standards or any. And he so. has Substack, a blog. Oh, well, yeah. Where where do you where do you, they find you on Substack? Uh, I think it's Brian Fink. I think F I N K. I don't know. I don't. I should pay attention better. It's Google in the, it. It's in my Twitter bio. Let me see here real quick. I think it's in there. B Fink. Dot Substack. Great. And all right, uh, lightning round. Your yeah, favorite oh book. The favorite book you've ever read. Uh, Kristen Lavern's daughter. Oh, we just yeah. did a class in the fellowship with uh, Deal Hudson on her work. Yeah, yeah. Or her, no, her, yeah, on 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 hers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she. That that uh, that just changed my life when I read it. It's been a few years, but yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, favorite book you've ever read your children? I've read my daughter and my oldest son, The Hobbit, at least three times. They love it. I mean, they just love it. We're reading The Princess and the Goblin right now, and it's a bit much for my oldest, but uh, it's just incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, I would say that. I would say The Hobbit because they love it so much. But you know, my my favorite little board book is, but not The Hippopotamus. That's got to be the best one. Favorite Joseph Pieper book. Or Joseph oh, leisure. Pieper. Yeah, I would say leisure, the base of culture. But he, everything he has is gold. It's all amazing. Gold. Yeah. 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 Living the truth is where I started. And then I just went down the rabbit hole of Pieper. Yeah. And his 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 treatises, treatises on virtue 
are just tremendous. I, I wrote my, my master's thesis on hope and yeah. I used his treatise on hope as yeah, a hope kind is of probably his most, his most complete, I would say, but they're all yeah. amazing. Yeah. 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 Uh, favorite movie of your lifetime. That's a great question. I, I don't want to say the movie that everyone thinks you should say if you're a young man and, and, and you're a Catholic man. I mean, I want to say a man for all seasons, but I, I, it's a great one. It's a great one. But I actually, I love goofy movies. I grew up watching Ace Ventura movies and Dumb and Dumber. And my brother and I can still to this day quote 90% of Dumb and Dumber by heart. And man, oh man, if I just <laughs> spent, funny. if I just spent more time like memorizing scripture and things like that, but I love sort of big, epic sweeping films, uh, thinking of like, uh, of, of Ben-Hur and I mean, I even, I love Braveheart and I love, my wife would tell you, I love science fiction films. I love films about space. So virtually all the films that you can think of about space where they go up into a, you know, into a, uh, uh, a rocket and they're like interstellar for instance interstellar uh, i love the idea Catholic. that's right There's i love the one. idea of what science fiction allows the genre allows people to to contemplate real life things in this kind of other world so i i, I really appreciate the shine the science fiction genre for that reason beautiful yeah uh, when people tell you you look like somebody famous who do they tell you look like? This should be an easy one, by the way. I don't. I don't think anyone has ever told me that I look like anyone famous. Um, Are you kidding? I I'm annoyingly serious. spot everybody's doppelganger. Do you really? And yours is definitely, without question, young Judd Nelson. Young Judd Nelson. Who's Judd Nelson? Oh, you got to Google it, man. Okay, you'll, you'll see. You'll see. Okay, I, think I he was in Breakfast Club or something. Oh yeah, the guy with the long hair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I describe myself as a uh, as a rectangle with legs and a, and a, <laughs> and a soccer ball on top because that's kind of how I look to myself. Ah, you, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. All right, Larissa, give me a lightning round question. We we completely uh, think a lot about these before we ask them. In case you haven't, we we don't just make them up on the fly. Uh, a lot of production goes into these. I rounds. can tell. I yes. have been so impressed the whole yes, way through. Thank you. Thank you. All yeah. right, Larissa, hit him. Tell us about your poem, The Christmas Word. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So uh, do you want the, the two minute version or the, or the five minute? You said you have an hour and you want to keep it under two, an hour. Okay. So about 10 years ago, I was at a party with friends, family friends, uh, and the power went out. And a buddy of mine, there's no power. So you, what do you do? You tell stories. And the, a buddy of mine proceeded to recite how the Grinch stole Christmas from memory. He did all the voices. He had the kids being, you know, Cindy Lou Who and the, Max, the, you know, the dog, the Grinch's dog. And he did the whole thing. And I was so impressed. I was so amazed. I thought, you know what? I'm going to do that. Because who knows? Maybe the power will go out some other time and I could do this thing and, and a different party and, you know. And so I started memorizing it and I thought, you know, if I'm going to memorize this, uh, a poem, a long poem about Christmas, I want to do it about Christmas, Christmas, you know. And so I started looking for long 
um, narrative style, lyrical style poems about Christmas. And there are a ton of kids' books and children's. I mean, there's so many. The genre is just flooded. But I couldn't find one that covered everything from, let's say, the, the Annunciation un, until maybe even finding, finding Jesus in the temple. And so I said, maybe I could write one. And so this is right after I discerned out of the seminary. I was single. Uh, I was living with priests at the time. And I was only teaching half days. Uh, I was working part-time at one place and then teaching in the afternoons at a high school. So I had some time in the morning. So every morning I'd get up and, um, and spend some time in prayer. And then I would write for two hours. And I, I wrote the draft of this, this little story in a few weeks. And yeah, it's a lyrical retelling of the nativity. Um, and it covers, like I said, it, it, it kind of begins with the Annunciation and kind of goes through the entire nativity story. Where can we find it? Well, you can buy physical can copies. You can buy yeah. physical copies from me. Um, and I, my, my kids decorate the, the envelopes and we mail them out from my house. Um, I've had some success with it. I mean, I, I think I've probably sold a thousand copies, maybe 750. How, how can people find it uh, is it through the, through your Twitter, through your sub stack? How, yeah, how do if, people if, get to you? If you, if you, um, if you go to, well, I can actually, I could update it on my, my Twitter profile. That'd probably be the easiest. Yeah. That, do that. And thing. we'll link to that. it at Magnus Institute. Yeah, or the a, what is our Twitter handle? Larissa AMI fellowship. AMI at, AMI, at AMI fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. I think our fellows would love that. Uh, yeah. And, and this conversation has been edifying on many levels and I want to continue it, Brian. Uh, thank you. Thank you. No, so I'm grateful. Much. No, I'm thank very, very grateful. Good work. And we got to meet up in the farm someday. That'd be soon. great. And kudos to you all at, at the Institute. I, I tell you, I've been, I, I've been following and I've been listening to the podcast and I was telling the rest of beforehand, just some amazing people on amazing work that you're doing with, with the, um, the, uh, the fellows and uh, you know, setting up this, this entire adult program of learning. I mean, it's just tremendous. It's so needed. So many people you talk to who, who find their way into the liberal arts world or into the classical world, will say, I was robbed of this education that I should have received. We hear that every day. All uh, the time. Yeah. About a thousand fellows strong now. And yeah. the, the the demand could it could not be stronger. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really impressive. And yeah. so so we're just glad to be one of many providing a little little window back into the ordered life that you are living. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, no, you're you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. I'm I'm very, very grateful. Very grateful. You bet. So Brian, Brian Fink, husband, dad, teacher, homesteader, grip, strength of Greek God. Find him on Twitter <laughs> at B underscore Fink and buy his poem. We'll figure out a way to do that and get it to you. And Perfect. we will see you next time on the Magnus podcast for Larissa, soon to be married. Uh, thank you so much. Bye bye. The Magnus podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.